What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we discuss the shrinking of the Colorado River and what it means for the industries that rely on it as a water source. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Let's say you had to choose between water to drink or water to grow the food that many people eat. Which would you choose? The question probably depends on who you are. If you were in an industry, you might choose the latter. You grow the food, of course, and you sell the food, and people need food to survive. If you were a city government, you might argue for the former. Can't have constituents to vote for you if they're pissed because they have to use bottled water for everything in their lives. It's a terrible trade-off regardless, but it is currently being played out in the western United States. The Colorado River, which provides water for 4 million Americans, has become perilously low, and unless the seven states that rely on the water source agree on how to cut their usage, the Biden administration is threatening to make the choice for them. By the way, the seven states that rely on the river for their livelihoods are Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, and Wyoming. Now this is a crisis decades in the making, but it is the latest example of how climate change is overwhelming our physical infrastructure like dams and reservoirs, many of which are in those states that I just mentioned and rely on the Colorado River to be actually active, the legal underpinnings that have made those systems work, and the economies and communities that have been built around dwindling water sources. For us, for ESG, How companies deal with droughts and a lack of usable water is captured in our environmental pillar. We have something called water stress, which is a key issue, and is based on the long-term average water imbalances and variations in water supply that may be exacerbated by seasonal droughts, which Colorado River has basically been dealing with the seasonal droughts since the 1920s. And there are three industries that we cover which rely on a lot of the water provided by the Colorado River and thus have a high exposure to water risk. That's food products, semiconductors, and energy. So I called up the three analysts that cover these industries to discuss what these cuts to the Colorado River, well, its water source, might mean for them. Cole Martin for agriculture, Matthew Lee for energy utilities, and Sipping Gao for semiconductors. I want to start off with coal because there is no industry that relies on water like the food industry and there is nothing we haven't done to bend water to the will of that vital industry. So focusing on California, which is the largest user of the Colorado River of the seven states, what could happen to the food industry, specifically the agriculture industry in California, if that river were to be dried up? I asked Cole Martin, who covers the sector for us. It's something like 85% of the water that is used from the river goes towards the agriculture industry. And within the industry, it's actually quite stark because one third of all the water or 60% of agriculture's water use goes towards just cattle feed alone. So that's corn silage, alfalfa, and hay. And so to the extent that these problems with the low water levels continue or get worse, the beef industry may be the most affected out of, the, out of all the sub-industries within agriculture. Now, to an extent, cattle farmers, beef cattle farmers, have some degree of flexibility when it comes to animal feed because actually cattle are quite versatile in what they can eat. In fact, there was a, a famous case about 10, 12 years ago when there was a, a fairly significant drought in the U.S. and, and feed prices skyrocketed 
farmers started feeding their cattle things like chocolate bars and peanut butter and candy and sprinkles and also all sorts of other things in order to get them by. So to some extent, there may be some degree, as I said, of flexibility for cattle farmers to mitigate some of the short-term effects of, of the low water levels uh, and the lack of, potentially lack of feed. And the other thing I would say is the U.S. is a very large country. The grain industry is spread throughout the country. And so, so temporarily, farmers may be able to get feed from other places or draw down stocks. But what may happen over time is as the crisis accelerates and as the water levels drop even further, that could ultimately push feed prices up further. And that could lead to higher prices, not just for cattle, but ultimately translate through to higher beef prices for consumers. Not to state the obvious, but higher prices for food commodities is not great for the companies that sell them. So does this mean that companies that rely on farming in the region are going to pick up and leave? Or have they seen this coming? It's not like the Colorado River all of a sudden began to drop. It's been dropping since like the 1920s. What would an investor in the food products industry think when they see that the water from the Colorado River is going to be rationed? I asked Cole all this, and what Cole did is he focused more on companies upstream to the farmers themselves. Farmers in the area will obviously have difficulty operating if they don't have water, but most of our ESG ratings are on the industries that rely on farmers rather than the farmers themselves. Okay, here's Cole. For, for the companies that are in the grain industry, for example, so those are things like your, your CPG cereal makers and whatnot, you know, they'll have water policies because they are very close to the situation directly. You know, they are contracting directly with grain growers in order to procure those crops, which they then process and then turn into cereal or baked goods or what have you. For companies like livestock producers, they're kind of depending on the sub-industry, they're kind of one step removed from that. So if they are sourcing beef from a third party, they're not worried necessarily directly about contracting grain products, right? They're worried about the supply of cattle uh, or the supply of beef, depending on what part of the supply chain they're in. And what often happens with, with the big livestock companies, that industry is very consolidated at the, pro at the meat processing stage, especially for beef. And so they have a lot of pricing power and, and power vis-a-vis -vis their suppliers. So they're able to get a relatively good price, even if there can be disruptions to, to overall cattle supply. So if you were an investor with exposure to food product companies that operated near or in the region of the Colorado River, and you knew that that water was going to be curtailed, what would you do? I asked Cole what he thought. You'd, you'd want to look at how diversified their supplier base is and you'd want to look at where their supplies tend to come from. Are they concentrated? Are, 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 there, are their manufacturing facilities, for example, concentrated in areas that are prone to water stress? Because within those supply chains, generally you want to contract cattle, for example, that are closer to your meat processing facility because that'll save you money on transport costs. So if you have a lot of facilities that are concentrated in areas where water stress could be an issue, you know that could ultimately be a cost for you as a company long term if you want to, for example, move facilities or or have to spend more money to ship your to ship cattle that you procured from from one place to another. Now, in terms of what companies will do about that from a financial perspective, oftentimes when benchmark commodity prices go up, so that could be grain prices or or, or benchmark uh, meat prices, you know, companies will raise prices along with that, even if their costs aren't necessarily rising at the same time. 
So you can have a situation where company profits temporarily may actually increase more than expected because those price increases are being passed through the consumers directly while the increase in costs will happen more slowly. But over time, if you raise prices too much, consumers may switch to other products. So for example, things like plant-based meat products or, or other type of uh, op- uh, food options, so protein options, etc., while you are then stuck with the rising costs of your raw materials. And so for, for, from a longer term perspective, let's say on a multi-year horizon, Companies will have companies may have to be weary of where their supply is located, and the extent to which uh, they are able to switch if there are, if there are if if the issues around droughts uh, and raw material supply become too problematic. Another industry that relies heavily on water is, that is relatively new compared to the agriculture industry is the semiconductor industry. Semiconductors, or they're called chips often, serve as the foundations of today's digital world and also have a huge water footprint. The chip manufacturing process relies on a large and steady source of ultra-pure water throughout the fabrication cycle to rinse particles and chemicals from these very sensitive chip surfaces. And if you have been following the news, you know that a company called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company made the largest direct foreign investment in the U.S. ever to build a semiconductor manufacturing plant. And where did they decide to build this plant, you asked? You guessed it, Arizona. And since Arizona depends on water from the Colorado River, I thought it would be good for me to call up my colleague Siping Yao, who covers the industry for us, and see what she thought about the region's water crisis. It is really, really hard for chip makers to decouple their capacity expansion with water consumption. So that means more capacity, more sophisticated fabrication processes like. The one that TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, is aiming at in Arizona. So that will definitely mean more water consumption in Arizona for TSMC. And not only TSMC is trying to build、um, a huge、um, facility there. There are also other、um, chip makers like Intel. Also,、uh, is planning a huge fa-、um, fabrication base over there, so that will definitely intensify the conflict among、um, water use stakeholders there. So, is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and Intel ready for a continued drought in the Southwest? Are there any changes the industry can make? Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company or TSMC is, I would say, the leaders among global. Chip maker, chip making peers, in water conservation. Um, so, um, Taiwan Semiconductor、uh, TSMC has the majority of its fabrication sites in very water stressed region for many years. So they really have water stre- stress issue on their radar and has put a lot of efforts in water conservation and improved the water recycling rate, etc. For example, in、um, opi- optimizing the production processes、um, to use, for example, less water for rings at each and every、um, uh, processes, and also improve their recycling because、um, they need to remove particles and chemicals from the used water and then 
um, purify it, recycling it, and make it make it able to be reused in their fabrication process. By the way, Taiwan, where a majority of semiconductors are made, doesn't really have a lot of water either. So this is an industry-wide issue for semiconductors, and they know it. Taiwanese companies have shown a consistent, strong commitment to water risk management. A majority of their water risk management initiatives are overseen by their C-suite or board-level employees, something that we think are best practices, which is much higher than the global average. And Taiwanese companies also report as having a higher average water recycling rate at 74% versus global peers that average around 33%. So this means, right, that they can weather the problems in Arizona. I asked Ping that very question. Yeah, because it it would be very costly for the chip makers to remove these particles and chemicals from wastewaters and turn them back to ultra pure water. And alternative water sources are not a common option for them because they really need ultra pure water. So not really not much they can do based on the current available technology. Yeah, a lot of chip makers are putting a lot of efforts, R&D uh, resources into technology innovations, into um, water, water recycling, and to, um, to water conservation. But it, the progress is really, really slow compared with the pace that all these chip makers are expanding their capacity worldwide. Last but not least is the energy sector. The Colorado River, which among other crucial functions, feeds Lake Mead. And the reservoir in Lake Mead propels the Hoover Dam, a significant source of power for Nevada, Arizona, and Southern California. So I called up Matthew Lee, who covers the energy industry for us, and asked him what he thought about how this region's drought could affect the energy industry. You know, directly, a lot of the dam operators for hydropower in this area are uh, Bureau for Land Management, so it's not going to directly affect the uh, investor-owned utilities perhaps as much. But, you know, there are public buildings and residents as well as tribes where their energy uh, use uh, could be affected by this. They might have to go purchase energy from the open market and that's much more expensive. I think the Washington Post in 2022 said it could be the difference between $30 a megawatt hour to $1,000 a megawatt hour in the summer. So that's the type of shock. Uh, local economies might be dealing with. But more broadly though, I think we can also use this as a case to examine some of the creeping doubts, if you will, that are coming around with hydropower. So in the region, uh, you do have PG&E, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, as well as Southern California Edison Company. So the parent company is Edison International. These two utilities do have, if you include pump storage, 3.8 gigawatts and 1.1 gigawatts respectively of capacity. Um, in California, in the region. So that what that means is if drought continues to affect this area, the reliability of these sources for power could be at risk. But I think another, uh, another aspect to think about is how geography can be a much more salient factor than just industry when it comes to thinking about physical climate risk. Um, I know with emissions, we like to think about like industry-specific exposure and best practices to manage it. But if you think about running a dam in, Calif uh, in California or Arizona compared to running a dam in Quebec or Maine, so that's actually where most of the hydropower in the U.S. is. So Hydro-Quebec, 42 gigawatts, Brookfield Renewable, 4.3 gigawatts, mostly um, in the Northeast, 
they have a different set of issues, right? Where snow melt actually is keeping their reserves pretty healthy. And so they don't have as big of an issue here. So I think it's also a good way to see how physical climate risk maybe is more affected by geography rather than business type. But for hydropower more generally though, um, the reliability is becoming a question uh, in terms of as a solution to uh, fossil fuels. So even if the sun will shine and the wind will blow, will the water always flow? That's becoming a really serious question to ask now. And not only is this an interplay between how we plan for the energy transition, uh, but it's also now a direct link to adapting, adapting to climate change, right? We are needing to adapt to climate change even at the same time as we're trying to avert its worst effects. I think that's a salient point to end us on, the difficulty we will likely face in the future as areas that are basically deserts can no longer be sustained in the manner that we used to. Researchers in California concluded back in 2018 that the state's climate had changed so significantly that urgent adaptation was needed in the agricultural sector to address a number of accelerating negative trends, including crop yield declines, increased pests and disease pressure, increased crop water demands, and an uncertain future sustainability of some highly vulnerable crops. And during last summer's unprecedented and prolonged heat wave, California farm workers were vulnerable and suffered heat stroke due to triple digit temperatures. Dairy cows suffered from heat stress. Steers and lambs were not dealing with anything well. They were very lethargic. Fruits dropped prematurely and others were sunburnt and unable to be used. And the problems are likely to mount as the world continues to get hotter. The three industries that we covered, food, semiconductor, and energy, may be able to adjust in the short term to a dwindling water supply. But even though many have robust water policies and oversight on their water usage, there are limits to what can be done. It might be that certain industries will no longer be viable in areas that experience decades-long droughts. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I also wanted to thank Cole and Zaping and Matthew for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That helps pushing us up on those ESG podcast lists. And subscribe if you want to hear myself or Bentley every week. That might be enjoyable for you too. Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.